Coming up, how elephants evolved from tree eaters to grass eaters. What you find is that it takes about three million years of grass eating before the teeth start to actually change their morphology and adapt. And why we're so good at baseball. Even if you train a, an adult male chimpanzee to throw, they can only throw around 20 miles per hour, which is a, you know, a third of the speed of, of a young 12-year-old uh, boy. We find out what sets us apart when it comes to throwing. Plus, the oldest genome sequence to date from an ancient horse bone. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Ancient DNA can tell us a lot about an organism's evolutionary past, but extracting ancient genomes is far from easy because DNA has a limited shelf life. Until now, the oldest genome to be sequenced belonged to a human that lived around 80,000 years ago. This week in Nature, there's a genome sequence nearly 10 times older, dating back around 700,000 years. It comes from an ancient horse, and it's been sequenced by Ludovic Orlando from the University of Copenhagen and his team. Jeff Marsh spoke to Ludovic about why his project did more than just flog a dead horse. What is so useful about ancient DNA? So ancient DNA, as you know, is the survival of uh, DNA molecules over time and other evolutionary times. And actually, um, these molecules, they can bring a lot of information about the past. For example, they could bring information about the ancient diseases that our populations have suffered from. They could also give information about the ancient ecosystems we were living in. Also, how many species have been influenced by the climatic changes, for example. And uh, on top of that, ancient DNA can also give information about the relationships between different extinct species. So actually, there is a full range of different topics that you could address using ancient DNA. Okay, and in this paper, you found some horse DNA, which is 700,000 years old or thereabouts. That sounds like an absolute game changer. Exactly. Actually, so far, the oldest genome that has been ever characterized is dating back to something like 70,000 or 80,000 years ago. So 700,000 years ago is an order of magnitude older than the previous ones. All right. And just to get a sort of picture of what you found, it it was a bone fragment. It wasn't a sort of fully preserved horse mid-gallop? So it was a piece of about like uh, 10 to 15 centimetres long of a metapodial, which is a sort of a, of a, of a bone from uh, one of the limbs. And so how was the DNA? Had it aged well? You know what? When we started the project, it was really um, almost impossible to characterise DNA that old. So we're expecting the DNA to be very much damaged and so it was. Uh, the DNA was pretty much fragmented. And not only this is for DNA, but what we've done in that study is characterizing as well a full set of proteins. Actually, the number is 73 of those proteins that we were able to sequence from the extract. And again, the basic components of the proteins are the amino acids. And some of these amino acids also are extremely damaged, such as the glutamine, for example. That sounds like a bad thing. What kind of bearing does that damage have on, you know, what we can do with the DNA? Of course, you can't manipulate it like you would manipulate some really freshly extracted DNA. Uh, It will be very, very difficult to assemble back 
the pieces of information you could get access to, simply because they are so short. So you will have to find the sort of pieces of the puzzle to reconstruct the full set of information present in a given genome. The third consequence that I can see is that because of the damage, some of the sequence of the individual has, has been uh, modified through time and actually are spurious. So the sequence has been kind of damaged and modified. So we have to find our way to tweak that damage out in order to identify the genuine kind of information that we could rely on to do some evolutionary inference. So this paper isn't just the result of a lucky find. It's neatly tied in with the advance in our, in our ability to manipulate this whole DNA. Absolutely. You couldn't be more mistaken if you thought that it was just, you know, find the right sample, plug it in in a, in a sort of super fancy machine, and then just wait for a, an easy genome to get assembled. Actually, it was a very long story that took over, over something like three years, where we had to advance some of the molecular tools that were available to make that uh, adventure possible. And one of the, of the tools that we had pioneered, the use of what we call true single DNA molecule sequencing, which are a sequencing platform that are able to sequence DNA molecules without even to amplify them. And you read through the sequences as they stand. So that means that you will have the highest sensitivity to get access to that pool of molecule, and that will remove a series of biases in the downstream analysis on top of it. As far as jigsaws go, that sounds like an absolute mare. Nevertheless, you managed to eventually get useful information out. So did you make any significant revelations about horse evolution? Definitely. So one of the main consequences of the work is that now that you have a date, 700,000 more or less, uh, for a given genome, then you could use the time difference you have and the number of mutations that you could identify compared to present-day horses to calibrate a so-called mutation rate. And using that mutation rate, now you could use it to date the time of origin of all the equids that are living today. The equids that are living today are the donkey, the zebras, the hemians, and the kiang in top of the horses. So now you could have the question, when did it all start for them? What we found is that the story of the Hequists that are living today started somewhere around 4 to 4.5 million years ago and nowhere near the 2 million years ago that some paleontologists thought was the actual date. That was Ludovic Orlando talking to Jeff Marsh. Coming up soon in the research highlights, sound that can squeeze through tiny holes and how aerosols may have suppressed hurricanes over the Atlantic. Now, I've never thought very much of my throwing ability, but according to a new study by scientists at Harvard University, I'm really good compared with other animals. I'd definitely beat a chimpanzee in a throwing contest. Darwin noted our aptitude for throwing in the 19th century, but since then the question of what makes us such good throwers has been rather tossed aside. So I caught up with new study leader Neil Roach, who took time out from fieldwork in Kenya to find some phone reception and explain what sets us apart when it comes to our pitching prowess. Uh, humans are remarkably good throwers. We can throw both with incredible accuracy and incredible velocity. So a professional baseball pitcher can throw about 90 miles per hour, uh, and they can do that you know, 100 or more times in a single game. Perhaps even more impressively, if you, if you go to any town in America where there's a Little League baseball game 
uh, you can find a you know a 12 year old kid throwing 60 to 70 miles per hour. You don't need to be adult sized. You don't need to be a professional athlete in order to produce these amazing throws. I'm guessing this ability to throw didn't evolve so we could play baseball or um, cricket in the UK. Oh uh, no, certainly not. In fact, what we argued and, and the reason that we were interested in this study was figuring out how far back this behavior dates, and we think it dates significantly further back than modern sports. Uh, in fact, back about two million years ago, we came from a group of animals that do throw occasionally. They throw objects, including their feces, at each other when they're displaying, uh, but they don't throw with the same power and, and the same accuracy that we see in humans. And I think really what happened around two million years ago is that as we began to be more reliant on a very different sort of life way. We became reliant on hunting. The advantages of being a good thrower were really quite profound. The ability to injure an animal or successfully hunt or kill prey without having to be right next to that animal really did amazing things for our our success as hunters and also our ability to survive encounters with large animals. How can you tell that throwing evolved two million years ago? What kind of evidence is there? Well, what we did in our study was we took a look at the the biomechanics. That's just the the simple physics of of the movement of someone when they were throwing. And that allowed us to look at the individual motions that were occurring at each joint in the body. Uh, And this type of approach, combined with an approach in which we limited people's range of motion at their joints, we limited their ability to move, to mock up what a more uh, primitive morphology would have looked like, a primitive anatomy, the anatomy of our ancestors. Uh, we figured out how much different joints contributed to the throwing motion and throwing performance. Uh, and using that, we were able to figure out how changes that had occurred in our evolutionary past had affected our ability to throw objects with uh, incredible speed. Tell me more about the setup of the study. So you invited um, people into your lab, did you? And they were throwing what? The people that came into our lab were all collegiate athletes, and they threw baseballs at a target that we had set up Uh, And the data that we collected came from little reflective markers that we put on their upper body. Uh, And we used a a 3D camera system to record how those markers were moving in space. Uh, These are the same type of camera systems that are used to make video games and uh, and animated characters in movies, such as Gollum and the Lord of the Rings. We just don't have quite as many cameras because we're not Hollywood. What did you learn from that then about the biomechanics of throwing and what makes um, us as humans so good at that? Well, we found that the thing that really accounts for humans' amazing performance as throwers is is our ability to store energy in our shoulders. Uh, And this is a rather odd concept, but you can think of the shoulder acting almost like a slingshot. So what you're doing when you're throwing, you actually move your arm back, you rotate your arm back away from the target before you accelerate it forward at the target. Uh, And as you rotate your arm back away from the target, the ligaments and the tendons and all of the muscles that are crossing your shoulder, they stretch uh, and they store elastic energy, just like you would uh, if you stretched the elastic bands on a slingshot. And when you then release that energy, the ball or the projectile or whatever you're holding is rapidly accelerated at the target, almost like a catapult. Uh, In professional baseball players, uh, that motion can be up to about 9,000 degrees per second. Uh, which is an incredibly, ridiculously fast speed. And this is occurring over just a few milliseconds, so, you know, a very small fraction of a second. Uh, But this rotation that's enabled by this energy stored in our shoulder really treats the rest of the arm like a whip 
uh, and the rest of the arm is essentially along for the ride once that rotation happens. How do we compare with our closest living relatives, chimpanzees? Well, I think the remarkable thing about chimpanzee throwing performance is that chimpanzees overall are incredibly athletic and very strong animals. Yet even if you train a, an adult male chimpanzee to throw, they can only throw around 20 miles per hour, which is a, you know, a third of the speed of, of a young uh, 12-year-old boy. Uh, so they're, they're quite poor throwers, in fact. And that really is what sets us apart, is the ability to throw things not only with accuracy, but also with tremendous speed. That was Neil Roach, who's recently moved from Harvard to the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Sound can squeeze through holes smaller than its wavelength in a specially made plastic wall. A few years ago, scientists transmitted light waves through seemingly impassable gaps. Naturally, they wondered if they could do the same with sound. So researchers at Yonsei University in South Korea stretched pieces of plastic film across tiny holes in a thin metal plate. The incoming sound waves resonated with the film, causing air to flow as if it were massless and funnel as much as 97% of the sound through the holes. The holes intensified the sound by a factor of nearly 6,000. This could make the material useful in sensitive detectors. Find that paper in Physical Review Letters. Man-made aerosols may have suppressed a number of tropical storms over the Atlantic during the 20th century. Natural aerosols, like dust particles, are known to influence hurricane activity, but the effects of anthropogenic aerosols aren't as clear. A team at the Met Office Hadley Centre in the UK modelled the frequency of North Atlantic tropical storms. They simulated storms that either included or excluded changes in man-made aerosols. As the levels of these aerosols increased in the earlier part of the century, tropical storm activity dropped. When they declined at the end of the century, the number of storms went up. The team think it's down to the effect aerosols have on clouds. You can read that study in Nature Geoscience. Soon to come, the news chat. But first, before Kerry went on holiday, she met some rather large teeth. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? A sensible evolutionary question, perhaps, because it's not always clear what comes first in evolution. A nature paper this week tackles a giant question using some appropriately large case studies, not at all chickens and eggs, but elephants and their teeth. I'm here at the Natural History Museum in London with Adrian Lister. Hello. Hi. Adrian, we usually assume, don't we, that when a creature's environment changes, its behaviour might change as well and physical characteristics it has might change. Yes, I think mostly uh, evolutionary biologists think about the environmental change and then they think about the adaptation. So, you know, if you need to eat grass, you get the teeth. Natural selection will evolve your teeth to eat grass and so on. And what I'm suggesting is that there is a missing step in that idea, that we really have to think about the behaviour because many of the adaptations that animals have are useless and then, unless they actually apply them to the environment uh, using their behaviour. This is an idea that's been around for quite a long time. But what we've lacked, really, are concrete examples of it in action. Exactly, and that's what we have here. You've been testing this theory um, yeah. using the fossil re record of elephants yeah. in Africa. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the samples you've been working with. Mm. And in fact, show me, because we've got some here in this drawer. Yeah, well, here are some specimens from the Natural History Museum collection. These are some molar teeth 
these ones are from Kenya. These specimens that's, that's are, just one tooth. That's almost this, the size of a rugby ball. This is not even complete. This specimen is actually would have been about 50% longer, but it's slightly broken. So the, these are huge molars. You've got a, the original tooth would have been something like 30 centimetres long and weighing several pounds in life. Of course, it's heavier now because it's fossilised. But the animal was carrying these massive molars around because if you're as big as an elephant, you do a lot of chewing. You're eating fairly low-quality vegetation food and you have to eat a lot of it. So you've got a, you need a lot of chewing power. And in terms of the evolution of elephants and perhaps there at the environment they were living in at the time, yeah. take us back as far as 10 million years mm. to Africa. What kind of changes were underway? Yeah, well, we know from uh, evidence on the environment that um, before about 10 million years ago, woodland was very widespread, woodland and forest, and most of the mammals that we have were adapted to, to woodland life. In other words, those that were herbivores were eating the leaves of trees and shrubs um, and those kinds of leaves, if you're a plant-eating mammal, are relatively soft. Um, but starting from about 10 million years ago, the climate changed, it got drier, and grasslands started to spread. This was a gradual process over millions of years. But there was an opportunity there for mammal species to adapt to a different kind of environment. New species evolved, ones that became uh, adapted to grass-eating. Now, if you're a herbivore and you're eating grass, you get a lot more wear on your teeth because, first of all, grass is a tougher kind of a leaf than tree leaves. Secondly, you need to eat more of it because it's lower quality. And thirdly, if you're feeding close to the ground, you pick up more grit from the soil with your food, and that also tends to wear down your teeth. So this tooth here that you've got in your hand, this, this kind of rugby ball-sized, yeah. and it's lobed, it's almost like the bottom of a, of a really strong walking shoe with the, these... Yeah, you um, could say that. It's got the ridges, but they, they're quite shallow. So the, the problem for an animal like this is that if it's eating a very abrasive food like grass, and you're doing that if you're an elephant for maybe 15, 20 hours a day, the teeth gradually wear down. And if the teeth, the enamel of the teeth wears right down to the root, the animal can't feed anymore and it'll die. So there's the, the pressure of natural selection, if you like, to increase the height of the tooth crown so that it's got longer to wear down before the animal expires. And if you're eating a, a coarser food like grass, you need the higher crown teeth. So that sample you were showing us there, that's only mm. one of a number of samples oh, gosh, similar yes. to this you'll, you'll have looked at. Yeah. And what do they tell you about the relationship between the elephant's environment, this change mm. from soft leaves yeah. to harder, harsher so grass? What was, so the idea that these tooth crowns increased in height, we've sort of broadly known about that. But, but what, what we can do now, which is interesting, is we can get a direct handle on what the animal is eating. And the way that we can do that is by taking a small sample of the tooth enamel and actually analysing it chemically. And by looking in particular at the isotopes of carbon, we can tell which kind of food that animal was eating. And presumably you found in this case that the elephant's climate or its environment changed, then its behaviour somehow changed yes. and then its teeth began that's, to that's change. The, that's exactly the three-step process that we've got in this study, that we start off with the environmental change. We've got, we've got the spread of the grasses. And we can see that about 8 million years ago, a lot of these different species of elephants, and there were quite a few different lineages, a lot of them switched quite rapidly from browsing, which is eating tree leaves, to grazing, which is eating grass, about 8 million years ago. But they still got the leaf-eating adapted teeth. That's what's so interesting about it. And what you find is that it takes about 3 million years of grass-eating before the teeth start to actually change their morphology and adapt. And that maybe is the surprise of the study. So perhaps some lessons for 
climate change these days and how readily species can adapt to changes in their environment. Yes, I think, I mean, I think there's a plus and a minus there. It shows that animals are quite flexible behaviourally and can, up to a point, adapt behaviourally to a changed environment. Of course, generally an evolutionary biologist will tell you that the rate the environments are changing now due to man-made factors is really too fast for what we normally consider to be the evolutionary process to keep up with it. Um, this model here maybe suggests it's not quite so bad as that in that they can adapt behaviourally with, with their existing morphology and perhaps those that are able to survive all the changes that are going on are those that are more flexible in their adaptations and their behaviour. Well, you know, I feel like I really sunk my teeth into that and thank you for helping me. A pleasure. Thanks very much. That was Adrian Lister at the Natural History Museum in London and he was talking to Kerry. Finally this week, the news chat. You may remember in a news chat in April we talked about HeLa cells, the cell line famously derived from young cancer victim Henrietta Lacks. When she died in 1951, her cells were taken by scientists and grown in labs for research. The cells became invaluable to medical science, but their use is controversial because they were taken without her or her family's permission. In a news feature this week, we hear about a similarly important cell line, but one that's no less controversial. WI38 was created by biologist Leonard Hayflick using a piece of tissue from an aborted fetus. Meredith Wadman has written about the cells and she joins me on the line. Meredith, when Leonard created WI38, the HeLa cell line was already being used by scientists, but these cells were different, weren't they? Yes, they were. The HeLa cell was an overtly cancerous cell, whereas these cells were normal. They had the normal human complement of 46 chromosomes, they were not cancerous, and they were a first in that regard. And since then they've proved enormously useful to scientists wanting to study vaccines. In fact, hundreds of millions of people have been immunised by vaccines made using these cells. Yes, that's true. Uh, they became quickly useful in vaccine research, where up till that time cells like monkey kidney cells had been used that required killing lots of monkeys and were expensive and had problems with being infected with monkey viruses. So having a human cell line that was virus-free was really valuable and quickly many vaccines uh, were created using these cells. Now the cells were derived from an aborted piece of tissue. In this particular case the abortion was entirely lawful but we don't know for sure whether the mother gave consent. And this has raised a whole set of questions. Yes, well, I, I should say that at the time it did not particularly raise a set of questions, but uh, the, the abortion that occurred to give rise to these cells was, was conducted in Sweden in 1962, where abortion was legal at the time. And using leftover surgical tissue or including aborted fetal tissue was a routine thing. It was done typically without donor consent, uh, and so it was kind of standard practice. As we've evolved through the decades, there's been a heightening of ethical awareness around issues about tissue consent and, and donor consent in general, so this is a, a more prickly issue today, although it should be stressed that even in the United States today, leftover surgical tissue, including tissue from aborted fetuses, may be used without consent, provided that it's stripped of identifiers. 
And then there's the separate issue of compensation. Roughly how much money is being made by vaccine makers that use these cells? It's very difficult to quantify that. At at best, what you can come up with is an order of magnitude, which would be billions of dollars with a B. So as you say, these cells are incredibly valuable. Now, compensation is perhaps one of the biggest concerns for Leonard. uh, And I called him to ask who he thought the cells belonged to and what his opinion was on that. Let's have a little listen to what he had to say. Well, the tissue belongs, first of all, to the fetus from which it was taken. The fetus was not alive in the sense that it would survive and thrive, so that the owner of the tissue, in a legal sense, is the estate of the fetus. And by that you mean the family? Yes, the surviving family. And in your minds, should the estate be offered compensation for those cells? Well, if the cells that you're referring to are WI-38, which was derived from the lung of that fetus, then there are four stakeholders. The estate of the fetus, the scientists who gave value to those cells, the institution in which the work was done, and finally, any organization that may have supported the work. To the best of my knowledge, no compensation has ever been made And I think that's wrong. Meredith, that's Leonard's view. What do other people have to say? I think 50 years after the fact, legal experts feel it would be very difficult to establish a financial claim to either the WI-38 cell strain or any product that was derived using it, simply because the amount of time that has gone by is itself a formidable barrier. But at the same time, that doesn't mitigate against a sort of a moral claim to some recognizance of of this family's contribution and, as Len argued, possibly of the, the scientists who gave it value. Does the U.S. have plans to change the way it regulates tissue donation? Not so much donations, but consent around them. The Department of Health and Human Services has proposed changing current rules so that if I as a scientist or as a company go to a biobank and get some de-identified surgical material, including possibly material from an aborted fetus, that, that the donor of that tissue needs to have signed a written consent saying, yes, it's okay, uh, even though at the point of picking up that tissue at the biobank, the researcher or the company scientist has no idea who it came from. OK, thanks, Meredith. Remember, you can read Meredith's feature and more news stories for free at nature.com news. That's it for this week. Join us again next time to find out how to build a human heart. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 